Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nicole Anarchy and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning, this podcast does contain spoilers for the Verse series. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Damn Camp, a Riordan verse read-along podcast that sets out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host Fran and welcome to the show. Today we continue our timeline journey as we move on to the next chapters in Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Chapter 5, I play Pinochle with a horse and chapter six i become supreme lord of the bathroom and as you can tell chapter five is going to be a complicated one for me because i don't know how to say that word is is it pinochle or pinochle or pinochle or is that the same as the one i said before i want to say pinochle just because i think it's going to be easier for me to say when i have to say it multiple times and i don't know if you can tell from my voice it may sound the same um but i am very unwell in <laughs> many different ways currently i i've managed to have like a huge muscle spasm in my lower back so it's kind of difficult to walk and all that stuff at the moment but I'm also coming down with something in my throat as well, which is great when you have to do lots of things like like talk for for a job and also for podcasting and YouTubing. Um, so this will be entertaining. So hopefully my voice doesn't die out halfway through and my back doesn't spasm suddenly that I end up on the floor and you just hear a sudden <laughs> me hitting the floor. But I, that'll be entertaining for you guys. So maybe you want that to happen please don't wish for that to happen because that's gonna that's not gonna be fun for me but um moving on from that really random information that i've just passed on to to you guys um yes i'll be talking about chapter five and chapter six today and you know as always i have my points to focus on so today i'll be looking at the world building exposition characters and generally what i thought of these chapters but to begin, here's the synopsis. Exposition extraordinaire Chiron and his sassy young assistant Annabeth Chase inform Percy of the ins and outs of Western civilization, learning disabilities, and all things demigod. As Percy tries not to be flushed down a toilet by Butch Cassidy, of course, everything changed when the waterbender attacked. And yeah, that's pretty well rounded explanation of what happens in those two chapters i i must if i must say my myself um which i do because i wrote it so of course i'm going to be very proud of what i've done um 
Speaking of waterbenders though, just to do a quick shout out to this here, on my tea public for my YouTube channel, A Healthy Dose of Fran, if you go to tpublic.com slash a dose of Fran, and I will link that in the episode notes, I do now have, as it's been advertised on our social media, uh, merchandise relating to Percy being a waterbender. Um, and it also combines various different fandoms. We've got, obviously, Percy Jackson fandom, Avatar The Last Airbender fandom, and also Harry Potter in that one design. So you can go check that out if that's something you're interested in at tpublic.com slash a dose of Fran. Just a little PSA there because um, the waterbender thing is going to definitely be something I bring up a lot in this podcast because as we see in chapter 6, which I will get to, but of course I must start with chapter 5, Percy is a waterbender. But before we get on to that, let us start with the overview of chapter 5. I play Pinochle, what did I say I was going to say? Yeah, Pinochle. I play Pinochle with a horse, which love that because it's very clear what is happening. Now the overview for this chapter is at chapter chapter is as follows. Percy is out cold for two days. Amid him being out and coming in and out of consciousness, we hear about a stolen object, a winter solstice deadline, and see a guy with lots of eyes. He wakes up and is grieving a lot for the loss of his mother, and Grover is feeling guilty as anything. We then go on to meet Mr. D and Tyrone and have a proper introduction to Annabeth Chase, who I shall dub a queen. And also, just a little side note, I have recently done a video on my YouTube channel about Annabeth Chase, if you are interested. I will now stop with those little shout outs for myself. <laughs> um, then, oop, the gods are real. But don't ask about the metaphysical because can't get into that here. There's also the discussion of the power of names. Mr. D, also known as Dionysus, has some pretty serious anger issues. Then Western civilization is in discussion and Western power. Uh, it's an interesting way of explaining how things change and why the location of Mount Olympus and the Greek god's power changes and has ended up in America. And Chiron as we learn Mr. Brunner is, is the trainer of heroes, the original train trainer of heroes from ancient Greece. And he is a centaur because he has a horse's body that was compacted into his wheelchair, which now we get the little hint of what happened in chapter two, where he seems much taller than someone who was meant to be in a wheelchair as well as the clock, clock, clock that we hear. The answers are all coming out now. But yes, that is the overview for chapter five. I play Pinocchio with a horse. Now, the thing that I predominantly want to focus on in this chapter particularly, um, and also kind of a little bit in the next chapter also, is uh, character as well as narrative and sense of place. Just because, especially in this part, there is 
so many fantastic descriptions of the location of Camp Half-Blood. Uh, but first, I, I'm going to talk about the characters that we meet in this chapter. So we have Annabeth, who is actually one of the first characters that we meet. We don't know who she is at that time, but she is nursing Percy back to health. She's feeding him something, and she is the one asking questions about the winter solstice, what's been stolen, and all these sort of things, and is very clearly desperate for information. So we kind of get a little bit of an idea as to her character. She's someone who knows things but doesn't have the full information and wants to. That she's she's an inquisitive person. Um, and as we see later on, she's also incredibly funny because when Percy meets her when he's fully conscious, the first thing that she says to him is, you drool in your sleep. And then she runs away. <laughs> and if that is not the best thing to kind of get a proper introduction to her, I don't know what is because that is hilarious and I love it so much. She is also described in a really interesting way. So she is described as basically a typical California girl. Tanned, blonde hair, uh, not like muscular or anything like that, but kind of has the image of a California girl except for her eyes, which are grey in colour and basically give a look of I could kill a man and get away with it sort of feel to them. That's not how Percy describes it, but um, that's the f- intention that I get behind it in that she she looks like she's looking for a way to be able to take someone down. So in my head, I'm like, she has a, a look of figuring out how she could kill someone and get away with it. And, you know, props to her for that because that would be really cool to actually... Look. Why am I saying murder is cool? Oh my God. Okay, guys... Public service announcement here. Murder is not cool. It is a crime. I I apologise for nearly saying murder is cool. Um, if there are police officers who um, have someone who did that, that, you can't quote me on this. I, I, I didn't mean it. I, I'm not trying to make anyone a murderer, I swear to God. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, we then also have a further introduction to... Mr. Brunner, who we now learn is actually Chiron, trainer of heroes. And what I think is really interesting about Chiron's character here is how different he is in a sense to what we knew him as, as Mr. Brunner. While he was like a a figure of authority and kind of care for Percy at Yancey Academy, here, especially when he's talking about and explaining all these things about gods and and the Western civilization and all these sort of things, he kind of gives this sort of like a like the Obi Wan sort of Yoda character figure. He's the wise kind of veteran who is passing on his knowledge and helping a young person who's coming into this world with no knowledge and no idea what to do, and he's taking on that role. And it just kind of shows who he is as a person. He's someone who has this experience, and it makes you wonder that, considering he's the original Charon from ancient Greece how many times he's given a speech like this and how many conversations that maybe he's even at that point where everything that he's saying is the exact same thing he says to everyone else except for a few of the questions that Percy asks like but actually this is this comes later so I won't go too much into that but um yeah just his conversations you it kind of makes you think how many times has he said it and is it now basically like a script at this point 
Um, I do quite find it quite funny that, that they do bring up that there is usually an ori orientation video um, for new campers. Um, <laughs> but Sharon decided to like give like a proper talk. So it, it makes me laugh a little bit with that. Uh, it kind of gives me this idea of, um, you know, in Spider-Man Homecoming where they use Captain America as like a figure to talk to people like when they're in trouble, like a detention video. He kind of comes in, sits on the chair and went, so you got detention. And it kind of gives me that sort of thing. Maybe that's like what the orientation video is like. Uh, someone comes in, maybe Chiron or like a, go a god or something, because later on we find out Apollo directed it. I know it's a bit of a spoiler, but like it's not an important one, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, he directed it. So imagine Apollo or someone walking in on screen, kind of sitting down and looking directly at the camera going, so, you learnt you're a demigod. Well, don't worry, you may be close to death at all current points, but there are some positives. And then just going into that, like that being the orientation video, that, I don't know, just makes me laugh. And now I really want someone to make a Camp Half-Blood orientation video. Maybe I should make one. That's something I may have to do. <laughs> I will keep you posted if I do do that. Um, what I do find slightly interesting is that he does have a sort of exposition dump a little bit. But considering it is info that we do need, uh, and it kind of shows his character a little bit, how much he says about Western civilization, as well as what he brings up in the next chapter as well. It just shows that he has almost an unlimited supply of knowledge and considering that he is like centuries year, years old it makes sense that he would have all this information and would give all this information to people who need it um, so even though it is expositiony and exposition dumpy it still kind of works um, and then we also have our first introduction to a god in the form of Mr. D or as we know him as Dionysus. Now, as we know from the, the Greek gods book that I did, which if you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to go back and listen to that. Um, Dionysus had probably one of the roughest times as a god other than the goddesses, because the goddesses really got screwed over so much. But Mr. D is very unfeeling and unkind when we do meet him he's he's snappy he's cruel to grover he's really snide about percy he kind of makes a comment about the death of percy's mum which is really not appropriate considering she's only recently passed and all these sort of things it's just it's it's just a very unkind person and clearly isn't happy about looking after demigods and being a camp director for for Camp Half-Blood and just being with demigods um, and it kind of makes sense just from what we know of the Greek gods book like how dem how demigods were and kind of what happened in terms of like his wife Ariadne for example being abandoned by the demigod Theseus because she no longer served a purpose for him like it's no wonder he's got this coloured like he basically is seeing things through is it rose-tinted glasses? Is that a phrase? Something like that. But he's just, he's seen demigods throughout the, the eons and sees them as selfish people. And it's no wonder that he continues to be bitter in that sense because this is all he's ever seen and all he's ever known in terms of 
demigod. So he's bitter, he's cruel, and it's it's terrible and it's horrible for him to be that way. But, as we know from the Greek gods book, kind of makes sense. Now to go on to the thing that I kind of, I think is the the best thing about this chapter, and also the next chapter as well, I really want to focus on it in this one particularly, is the sort of the narrative sense of place that is given for this chapter. Now this is something that we're given pretty much near from the beginning of this chapter. And that is descriptions of the views, uh, like the meadows, the strawberry fields, sun, the sunlight and sun rising and stuff like that. But the way in which this sense of place and these visuals are written and given and tied into narrative is just incredible to me. And the example that I've just given of Percy being sat out on, on the deck and seeing the meadows and the hills and like this beautiful image that's in front of him and just everything is just breathtakingly beautiful and the way it's described gives that sense but what's interesting is that all of this beautiful imagery is compared to grief and the words that are used for this are just it's just really really interesting where Percy is saying in his mind my mother was gone the whole world should be black and cold. Nothing should look beautiful. And it's just, it's such an evocative phrase in relation to the fact that we've just had this full paragraph of all these beautiful images that Percy is seeing. And all he can think about is, this isn't right. Nothing should be looking this beautiful because my mother is gone. She's gone, she's not coming back, and yet the world is still turning. How is that okay? And it just, it really kind of gets you in the feels with that, and it's just, it's such a beautiful moment. I say beautiful moment, like obviously it's devastating, but it's beautifully well written, and how it ties into grief and the visuals is just really well done. And it continues, like, I think this is the thing that Rick just does really well, is that he's brilliant at describing visuals when it needs to be done like um the description of the big house that he gives like it it's just it it really just gives a sense of place a sense of kind of like a sort of foreboding in a sense because it's it's a big house it it's in the name and it's it's leading up to something that is unknown to Percy so the description shows it to be a beautiful and interesting place but also this sense of kind of unease comes with it which is just really interesting and then also the description of Camp Half-Blood as a whole we get like a real sense of place and feeling also like Percy is seeing these campers around everywhere there's like a volleyball field there's um, a dining pavilion that he can see um, a canoe area and all these like brilliant stuff like every the camp feels homely especially in the way in which it's described and the people that are there seem to be relaxed and having fun and just the whole description and visual that we get of Camp Half-Blood just in this small moment because it's only a paragraph description of Camp Half-Blood we get more description in the next chapter but this small bit we get the sense of its beauty and we kind of feel relaxed. We like we've been concerned about Percy pretty much from from chapter one, really. 
and now even though we know he's grieving and that he's in a dark and hurting place hearing these descriptions of the big house of camp half-blood of what he's seeing we kind of relax at the same time because a place like this is something that is warm and inviting it gives you this warm feeling in your chest and to know that he is in a place that is relaxing and beautiful you're able to kind of take a breath and and release that breath in that at least for the meantime he's safe and and he's in a good environment um and that's just kind of what I get from the description whether or not other people do well it's my interpretation this is this is my podcast so uh (laughs) if you guys think differently let us know on our social media but that's just kind of the feeling that I get from it and whether it was intentional or not that's just kind of what came across and I just think it's just the descriptions are just brilliant and they really work to give a sense of place and feeling which is something that I don't usually get from descriptions like that especially of a location like getting a description of a location you wouldn't normally feel anything for it it's it's a location why why would I feel something about a place especially one that I don't really know anything about at current but you do and it's just yeah it's just brilliant I've randomly gone on a rant about sense of place but yeah it's just really really interesting and but going off of that description though let's lead into chapter six I become supreme lord of the bathroom and this may be thus far my favorite chapter title um just because it's not only accurate to what happens near the end of the chapter but it's also just it just shows percy's personality and i i just love it okay so the overview for chapter six chiron shows percy around the camp explains their finances because honestly important percy fears for grover's future and feels guilty for his part in it and just a little side note this is relating to something that i brought up in the last um episode actually about percy feeling guilty in that his mother's death and now grover's future are are his fault everything that he's done has led to these things happening and if he'd done things right and how he was meant to be doing it like not ditching grover at the bus station or wherever it was he left him i can't remember now none of the bad things that happened would have happened so he's gone straight into that self-blame element again in this chapter which is it's it hurts to see him at that part but at the same time it's nice to see that he cares a lot about grover speaking of grover it turns out that bringing percy to camp was grover's second chance so we then wonder what was his first failure Percy then starts to have a plan in his mind because if the gods are real, the underworld is. So he hopes he can maybe find his mum again. Chiron, god of deflection. (laughs) Um, This is also a camp of health and safety violations with spears galore, knives, weapons. Capture the flag that can sometimes lead to severe injuries and death apparently. Um, Then we meet the cabins and are introduced to cabin 11, the Hermes cabin. Enter also 
Percy the Klutz. We meet Luke, laid-back, charming, informative Luke. Get an in-depth monster explanation of exposition. Exposition? Exposition. Uh, Demigod reveal. Percy fights with the camp bully and wins by toilet destruction. We end with Annabeth having a plan for Capture the Flag. And that is chapter six. And chapter six, I, I will say, I it wasn't my favourite chapter until kind of the last little bit, just because there is a ton of exposition in this chapter to a point that it kind of it becomes really obvious that it's all about just getting this information out so we are informed as readers um it's a bit much in some cases but i i kind of understand why it was necessary um just in the chapter as a whole other than like uh clarice larue as we know at the end trying to flush percy's head down the toilet and him exploding toilet water in her face and stuff like that nothing else really kind of happens in this chapter it's really basically just an explanation chapter uh we learn about camp half-blood the gods demigods and monsters so uh the gods are powered by western civilization go where each source of power is like the the gods were in the british empire and, and britain for centuries and now they're in america the explanation of demigods is that they often have ADHD and dyslexia because they're wired for battle reflexes and understand ancient Greece, Greece, ancient Greek language more than anything because that's what their dyslexia is going to understand more. Um, the 12 cabins in Camp Half-Blood represent the Olympians. Uh, the Hermes cabin where Percy is going to be staying is overrun with unclaimed and undetermined demigods. Monsters, as Annabeth explains, don't always, they aren't gone forever. Basically, the Minotaur that Percy has killed and Mrs. Dodds will come back eventually. They just turn to dust, go back to Tartarus, reform and then come back angrier than ever. And so there's a constant forever recycled battle against these creatures because they never die, die. And that is just like, that is the whole first bit of that, of this chapter leading up until this whole Clarice thing. And it is frustrating, but at the same time, like it it, it makes sense that we are getting this. I, I slightly wish it was spread out a little bit more just so we, we kind of weren't getting all this info in one chapter. But it's, even though it is an exposition dump, it still works. Like, we get brilliant descriptions of the cabins, for example, and can almost tell which god represents which cabin. Like, uh, there's a cabin which is solid gold, like sunlight. Apollo, because god of the sun. Uh, tomato vines and a grass roof. Demeter, because, uh, oh god, what she's the goddess for, uh, harvest and foodstuffs, um, and kind of things like that. So all the info that we are getting is important and ties into the conversations that are popping up, like the Minotaur horn, like that's how the conversation of monsters come comes up, because Percy still has the Minotaur horn with him. So that it ties into what is going on in their conversation, but... 
yeah no if i think if it was to be done differently maybe spread out that information a little bit more than than it is currently however even though there's a lot of exposition dump we also do get quite a lot about character in this chapter as well both in the forms of the new characters we're introduced to with luke and annabeth but also with percy now i'm going to start with annabeth again because we get a bit more about her in this chapter than we did in the previous one and that is the fact that she literally has a no-nonsense attitude like Percy is getting whiny, he's annoyed, he doesn't understand what's going on, and Annabeth's just kind of like, okay, good for you, I don't care, follow me, I'm giving you a tour. I'm telling you these things to keep you alive, you you idiot. Um, Pay attention, stop acting whiny, get a grip. And, like, (laughs) I just find it really, really funny, because she's been there for, for years, as Grover says in the last chapter, she's been here longer than most other campers. Uh, we don't know how long that is at this current point, but with her being Percy's age, we can tell that she must have been here from when she was young. And obviously, based on the diary of Luca Stillen that we've read before, we know that when she found Talia and and Luke, she was seven years old. Um, in Again, within this chapter, we just see her relationship with Percy kind of slightly begin to build a little bit. So we feel her frustration at Percy not being this person that she was kind of waiting for um her words being and to think i thought you were the one which the irony that usually when it says the one there's a romantic connotation behind it but in this case it doesn't feel like that but we also have her kind of taking an interest in percy and um kind of making sure that he's okay in a sense uh, we also see a development on her relationships outside of Percy in terms of a connection with Luke um, in the sense that she blushes when she talks to him and when he talks to her and just generally when he talks, uh, which is really quite cute. But at the same time, like he's 19, she's 12, a little bit weird, but whatever. Childhood crush, you know, like I had a crush on Zac Efron when I was straight and I was like, how? when was I straight? um uh maybe okay 16 when i came out had a crush on him when i was like 13 so i was like how do i make myself look really straight zach efron um but yeah so it's kind of like that thing like the childhood crush kind of thing um what's really nice about it is that she doesn't abandon percy with the clarice situation um but she knows she can't get involved as it'd be bad for both of them if she did because it would show Percy is weak and it would mean that the whole camp would see him as nothing and he'd be a bit of an outcast but it also means that she would end up in the same situation as Percy because she's trying to fight his battle and she'd also end up with her head being shoved in a toilet um yeah in just this small chapter we get her explaining a lot of things making sure Percy understands what's going on being frustrated because he is a little bit slow but also showing that she is a really kind person because she she stays there the whole time just to kind of see if there's anything that she can do a bit kind of from from the looks of it if he ever called out for her to help she probably would go and help him because she was right nearby if she if he needed her and so that's why annabeth chase is a queen um to go on to percy though we get a bit of a development with Percy here in the fact that 
obviously he is going through tremendous amounts of grief and he's suddenly becoming overwhelmed with greek gods being real him being a half-blood also known as a demigod although i don't think they use the word demigod here making references to his adhd and dyslexia being bullied by by a god and then being bullied by another camper and having his head nearly shoved down a toilet like he he doesn't understand what's happening he doesn't understand what's going on whatsoever and it's making him frustrated and angry and 100 percent justified and like it makes sense like why wouldn't you be frustrated and angry if so many things are happening you kind of aren't being given enough information to understand what that is um probably isn't helping that he can tell that Chiron is very clearly keeping things from him like before so it feels like he's kind of he's learning everything but at the same time he's being kept out of the loop still and that's what got him into the trouble in the first place like it to him it's probably thinking the last time I was left out of stuff I was made to feel like I was crazy maybe this is happening again and I don't know if that was the case this is just kind of how I interpret it but um yeah no it's just seeing him getting frustrated and a little bit whiny about it all really makes sense because he's in the middle of grief and he's suddenly being bombarded with all these things that he believed to be myths that are actually real like it's it's crazy but even after all of that that's going on he's still a good guy like he's fighting back against the bully and also being thankful that annabeth doesn't get involved in my mind the reason why he's like that is because he doesn't want her to get hurt just because that's the kind of guy that he is and yeah so that's just how percy's kind of developing in this chapter um so i'm intrigued to see where he goes on to in the next chapter well the next two chapters <laughs> and then of course we have our introduction to luke and straight away he comes off as charismatic kind-hearted and doesn't get annoyed by Percy's questions like most of the people seem to do. Like Chiron kind of placates him with answers. Uh, Mr. D really doesn't give a damn. Grover doesn't really know that much so we can't really help. And then Annabeth is just Annabeth and she's kind of she's telling him and then he's not understanding and she's kind of like well I've told you so she probably understand. Luke is taking the time to help him understand and answer his questions in a way in which he will understand and straight away we the audience are going to think this is this is the good guy he's an, he's a nice guy and honestly he is like his cabin is taking in people who are unclaimed they don't know who their parents are um and he's just he's a really calming presence but as it is described there is a scar on his face that goes from his eye down to his jaw and as Percy basically describes like he looks like a really cool sort of surfer dude if it weren't for the slightly scary scar on his face that gives him a sort of sinister look and it just makes us wonder what the hell happened (laughs) for him to get that scar and I can't remember if we do find out. I feel like we do, but I can't remember what it is. But yeah, so he also kind of just generally gives off this kind older brother vibe that seems to put people at ease. And he just generally makes Percy feel comfortable, which makes us, the audience, 
feel glad that Percy is feeling comfortable. Kind of like what I was saying earlier, that the description of Camp Half-Blood being this relaxing, beautiful place. Luke is having that same feel. He's making Percy feel comfortable, which is kind of what we want for Percy right now because this boy has been through so much and we're only six chapters in. This boy needs... He needs he needs sleep. He needs a hug. He needs blue, all the blue food that he, he could ever want because our boy is sad and I want him happy again. Um... But yeah, so those are the characters and just generally my thoughts for chapter 5 and chapter 6. But to summarise as a whole, my final thoughts on those two chapters. Well, generally, I think it's been a brilliant exploration of grief and also kind of exploration of how the modernisation of Greek gods work and why they're in the US. This is a thing, it's kind of like a side comment and it's not something I would... I'm not I'm not endorsing because I think it's kind of slightly stupid but there was an article a little little while ago especially to do with like westernization and stuff like that in Percy Jackson there's um an article called uh I think it's like the whitening thief or something like that to talk about how Percy Jackson basically perpetrates white supremacy which is the weirdest thing that I've ever heard and like there are some points that I kind of got, but not to do with white supremacy. That's like it's the weirdest thing I've ever read, and I I wouldn't recommend reading it. But if you kind of want to get this point of view, um, just search PGO white supremacy and oh god, no, it's horrible to search. But it was it was kind of interesting to read the perspective to do with that whole westernization element of of Percy Jackson. Um, but the guy just really just bashes Percy Jackson kind of without really knowing much about it. So it's based on just that on just on the Lightning Thief, from what I can tell. There's no other further stuff from it. It's just that book. Um, it was weird, but you know, if you guys want to read it, you can, of course. So, so I thought that's why I brought it up, just because that popped into my head when I was reading the Westernization bit again. Um, so yeah, that random point um then also just generally the sense of place and location descriptions are just generally fantastic it's something that i really love about rick's work as a whole um when it's needed his descriptive work is just so on point um we understand the land of of camp half-blood um the cabins what they represent why they're there the big house what they looked and felt like and just this sense of feeling of locations is just really, really cool. And then, of course, the introducing of the new characters that we have um, in terms of Annabeth and Luke. Um, we can tell that they're both clearly important because there's quite a bit of a focus on them. Uh, Annabeth especially because she she pops up in both chapters. She has a lot of information to kind of pass on. Um, so I think she's kind of going to be the person that really guides Percy a little bit when it comes to Camp Half-Blood and Luke possibly as well because of that sort of older brother vibe um, but we'll see in the next couple of chapters um, the final final point is while it may be you know quite exposition dumpy especially the last chapter chapter six it comes across pretty naturally in in most areas um, if, if a bit much as well but I think I think it's pulled off quite well but 
could have been done better in some areas. And those are my final thoughts for chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, as always, as you guys know, at the end of this podcast, I do my question of the episodes and reflect on my last week's question. So today, I will be doing that once again. Now, last week's question was, parents in stories never get the front focused, nor often as adored as Queen Sally. So what I want to know is, who is your favourite parent character in a series and why? Now, these are some of the answers that I got on our Instagram, where, of course, you can follow us and answer the, the question there as well. So from Into the Ryalden Verse, they say, obviously, Sally. To the point, I like it. Uh, from Megan Nuke, uh, I apologise if that's wrong. I love Mrs. Fenton, brackets Maddie, from Danny Phantom. She's smart, kind, lovable and a total boss. I haven't actually seen Danny Phantom, or at least not completely, but um, I, I know I know that character and I know completely what you mean about, about her. She, she is a total boss. 100% love that answer. And from the fabulous Hot Stuff Valdez, who comes back with answers every week, and I appreciate it, they say, I, I'd have to go with Sally Jackson. Because in most books, the main character will either have an evil guardian or the parent will be dead or gone. But Sally is there for her son and I really love it when books include parents in their stories. It makes the story feel more real. Then from Wizarding Diary, obviously Sally slash Molly Weasley. They're both very caring and supportive toward, towards their children. Then from Affa Cook, Buffy's mum from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She was just super there for Buffy whenever she had to, barring the end of season two. I don't know what happened in season two, but now I'm worried. <laughs> and she really helped her through some tough stuff. And then from Orina Potterhead, Sally Jackson or Molly Weasley. Now what I do find interesting about this actually is um, most of these characters are the mothers there's no kind of really any favorite male par parents or or a father uh, guardian or father figure who is brought up and i think that's quite interesting because i think that's a common theme actually i'm just now trying to think of any book that i've read or been involved with that had like a positive father figure and i, I don't actually think there are any um i'm also now looking at my films to see if uh, there are any there as well. Uh, Lion King, I guess, is a positive father figure. Oh, wait, no, that ends badly, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, Bambi, maybe, with, with the great prince. Um, referring to Bambi 2, we get a little bit more exploration of that relationship. Uh, a goofy movie. Goofy and Max. Um, but yeah, no, it seems mostly the mothers seem to be like the favourite parent characters and also the really caring ones more often than not, um, which is interesting. I guess it kind of gives the whole thing that most people assume that the mothers are kind of the caring characters and that just kind of ends up being how it is. But actually, just randomly, so this isn't the question of the episode, but I'm intrigued now. Are there any father figure characters from stories or films or 
anything like that that you really liked as a character just because I'm intrigued to see if there are any kind of nice father figures um, in books that that you guys know of just because I I can't really think of any so I'm intrigued so yes if you've got any father figure characters let me know but for the actual question of the episode today relating to chapters five and six the question of the episode is Percy is undergoing a lot of change and grief if you were a fellow camp half-blood camper and saw what he was going through how would you comfort him and I am really intrigued to see what you guys are going to say for for that question um so of course to answer that I will be posting uh that question post on our Instagram um at best damn camp pod uh also be on our Twitter uh you could dm us on instagram or you could send us an email to the best camp at hotmail.com uh, really looking forward to hearing your answers and yes so as always thank you all for joining me today for chapters five and six of percy jackson and the lightning thief be sure to join me next wednesday for the next two chapters to plug where you can find our podcast we are available on spotify Apple Podcast, where please can you leave a review and rating if you're able to, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Deezer. In the meantime, between episodes, you can find the Best Damn Camp on various social media at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Tumblr at thebestdamncamp.tumblr.com. If you want to email me with your own thoughts, feedback or anything like that for the podcast you can email the best damn camp at hotmail.com and i will read it out at the end of the show if you wish me to also be sure to check out my youtube channel a healthy dose of fran for more percy jackson content and drop me a follow at a healthy dose of fran on instagram and a dose of fran on twitter again thank you guys for tuning in hold on I've got another thing actually before I sign off. I now have a public Snapchat for everyone to check out where you can get behind the scenes stuff to do with this podcast and my YouTube channel. So you can find that Snapchat info at a dose of Fran on Snapchat. And that is it. I apologize. I forgot that I started that today (laughs) of the starting of this recording. Now to sign off again, thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own hunter, and I will see slash speak to you guys next time. Bye.